Welcome to the Retail Smarts podcast, where each fortnight we explore the stories and insights of trailblazers in the Australian retail ecosystem. My name is Dominique Lamb. I'm the CEO of the National Retail Association. This week, our guest is Dr. Jason Pallant, Senior Lecturer of Marketing at the Swinburne University of Technology. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. This is an absolute pleasure. Um, Jason just joins us today to talk about how retail research boosts your business. We're actually doing a crossover episode today, so you'll find part one of this interview here and part two on Jason's own Shopology podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you because, uh, you know, as you've rightly pointed out to me while we were sitting here chatting, we get quoted um, together in lots of different media articles and obviously like to talk about all the same things in retail. And I understand that, you know, some of your specialties around that customer experience and personalization side, how did you get into um, retail and, and those kinds of things? Yeah, so so talking of um, being quoted together, actually, you were in one of the my first ever TV appearances, uh, which was a pre-record, and it was me and then you, and I was like, oh my god, I'm on with the CEO of the National Retail Association. I've made it. It was a it was a big moment for me. So thank you for that. It's really nice to now, you know, full circle it and uh, and be on the show together. R- retail for me is something um, like a lot of people. I think you know, I worked in retail. Uh, growing up and, and, you know, obviously like to shop. But as an academic, it's a question I get often because something for us is like we have so much autonomy. We can research anything we want, really. Like I'm a marketing lecturer, but, you know, that can mean so many different things. So people at conferences often say, you know, why retail? Why not services? Why not, you know, B2B? Why not strategy, CEOs, whatever? And I think for me, like coming from a psychology background, I've always been really interested in, you know, what makes people tick, you know, what, what drives our behavior, why we do what we do. And I think when you apply that to retail, it's just such a fascinating area for consumer psychology, consumer behavior. And it's something that, you know, we all live, we all are consumers, even if we don't all work for retailers. So researching, you know, why did I buy that shirt over that other one when this one's twice the price? Or why did I get sucked in for that special buy that I didn't really need? Um, I think is a fascinating space for research. So I'm glad I fell into it and I think I'm here to stay. It is an incredibly fascinating space, especially when you look at all the triggers um, that I think our retailers cleverly use to get you involved. And I always talk about how, you know, when you go to Las Vegas, each of the casinos has their own scent. And in fact, they scent them because it's the best trigger for memory. um, And you're likely to stay in the casino for longer that, you know, triggers all of those, you know, pleasant things um, in your memory. You know, tell me a bit about some of the retailers and some of the things that they do to kind of convince us to buy that shirt over that other shirt amongst other things. Yeah, I love that. That's always a good one, talking about the smell. The one I also like to talk about is, you know, is putting milk at the at the back end of your supermarket because we know people run in and need milk, but forces them to walk through and, and see things and sort of have those moments of discovery or delight. Um, the other one I like to talk about is you know, putting the more expensive items up on the top left of a shelf. We think about, you know, if you're in a bottle shop and you're, you know, you're off to get a new whiskey or a, a gin or something, putting those expensive ones up on the top left because, you know, in a lot of Western cultures, that's the way that we read. We read from the top left down to the bottom right and that then frames your reference. You know, if I look up and see a $300 30-year-old scotch, then the $150 one that's 
you know, down the middle doesn't seem so bad. Uh, whereas if I start with some of the cheapies, it seems quite expensive. Um, so I think that those kind of psychological effects that we don't necessarily think of as consumers, but once we then talk about them, we're like, yes, that's so true. I, I see that, you know, I know that one is, uh, is what really gets me excited about retail and retail research, I guess. It's, it is an incredibly fascinating space, um, you know, not only from kind of the employer perspective and from the consumer perspective and also obviously from the employee perspective because now I think we see more about our retailers moving towards that, um, you know, almost personalization of employment as well because they want their shop assistants to look and feel very much like their brand and they want them to reflect their values and all of those kinds of things. And we've seen that real rise in consumer activism as well. How big a part do you think that plays, you know, in our consumers' choices for what we shop and buy? Yeah, I think it's really massive. It's actually a great point you brought up about shop, like, uh, sorry, employees, shop floor staff. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, a while back for, for Inside Retail about you know, how they're often overlooked in terms of the massive impact that they have on consumers. It can make such a big difference if you're in the mood or you need help when you walk into a store for someone just to greet you and offer that help or direct or give you a recommendation versus, you know, if you are in the mood to just get in and out, that can actually be a barrier. You know, somebody coming and trying to, to add assistance when you don't necessarily want it. And so that kind of thing where, you know, those shop floor staff have such a, a big impact on the experience customers have, the whether they're likely to be upsold or, or buy something different, walk out of there happy, that I think can often be, you know, forgotten, uh, not forgotten, but I guess undervalued by uh, by a lot of some of the bigger big uh, brands and retailers because it can be such a cost for those wages. But the research definitely supports that having good staff that are engaged, well trained, uh, and really love the brand and and become brand advocates can have such a massive positive impact on customers and customer experience uh, as well. So it's a really good point. It's so interesting that you say that because, you know, we often talk to, you know, retailers that are very upset about the fact that our retail workers don't stay and they don't, you know, kind of create these succession plans through their businesses. And, you know, this this view that retail as a career is transient or it's short-lived and it's not somewhere that you go and, and kind of work and grow through a profession. But when you look at, I guess, experiences across the world, you know, there is so much more value put on customer service employees or shop assistants or, you know, shop floor staff, um, particularly in Europe or even in places like Japan. Um, whereas in Australia, I mean, I think COVID-19 has probably highlighted this, you know, in such a terrible way. There is a certain level of flippancy when it comes to the retail worker. Um, you know, we see them have really high levels of customer abuse and there's lots of customer violence and things happening at the moment. And we've seen, you know, the SDA, which is the union in our space, produced a report that says 85% of their members say that, you know, retail workers are abused on a daily basis. And it is so sad when, as you say, having good customer service in a store can change the productivity of that store. Yeah, massively. And it is, you're right, it is such a shame that uh, shop floor staff have copped so much of the abuse and anger from customers. Um, and I guess it's sort of also a concern of mine as we look to, you know, the quote unquote vaccinated economy or, or some of those um, restrictions or the expectations that are being put on retailers to enforce 
you know, laws that they're not used to, right? I even remember look at things like when there was um, purchasing limits on toilet paper or whatever it was, you know, look, retail staff in the whole are not trained to, you know, fight customers to stop them from bulk buying toilet paper. You know, it's not really a thing that a lot of staff signed up for when they went to work in retail. And now we're asking them to do a whole lot more for, you know, not just their retailers, but for the safety of other shoppers and, and society. It's a really big ask. Um, so some of my colleagues actually at Swinburne did some research, published this around the actual skills that uh, retail shop floor staff require and the impact that that can have. And one of the big things they found is like, it's so much, it's actually some really high level skills, right? Like it's, it's creative thinking, it's um, analysis, it's being able to, you know, you, you're being like a psychologist and an analyst, looking at a customer, figuring out what they want, trying to help them combined with attention to detail, the ability to actually, you know, know what should be on the shelf where like, when you actually unpack what makes a good retail experience and what staff need to do to bring that, it's actually a really highly skilled uh, requiring position, right? And as you said, there's sometimes a bit of a flippancy and there's that challenge. We call it, we called it a while back in a report of what the war for talent, right? It's like getting people in and then keeping them. It's actually a real challenge, but it does make for successful retailers. You know, the retailers that do well tend to have staff who love working there uh, and want to keep working there. And then that is, I think, it's, it couldn't be truer at this point in time. I mean, we know that there are skill shortages across the country, you know, whether it be in hospitality or in retail, and, and certainly our retailers at the moment in the onset of Christmas are desperately looking for staff members. And, you know, they, they need to have all these skills and the skill sets that they require are absolutely changing, especially with the onset of online. You know, talk to me a bit about you know, where you think this, you know, I hate to use the word omni-channel, but let's just say multi-channel world of retail is going because we know it's very much about digital. So, it's about having both a physical and a digital store. And we know that their demographics typically be, are different. The people that shop online are very different to the ones that shop in store. Where do you think the world of Australian multi-channel retail is heading? Do you think it's here to stay? Do you think it's here to grow? I mean, I think we've seen the rates now of online shopping being well above Christmas levels already. I think it's now sitting at about 16.9%. If you look at the ABS, it was 9.5% before COVID-19 started. You know, how, how large do you think this will go? Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating space. And you mentioned, you know, what term to call it. We could play a bit of like uh, corporate bingo here with all the buzz terms, you know, multi-channel, omni-channel, liquid, hybrid, uh, you know, there's so many different terms. Let's just say, I, I actually just really do like multi-channel in terms of it's just, it seems to be the most factual, you know, representation of what we're talking about, which is the using multiple channels to engage with customers, customers also using multiple channels to research, purchase, you know, across the whole um, path to purchase. So, whatever term we call it, I think, as you said, like it, it definitely is going to continue growing. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is, as we saw, you know, COVID has forced it to grow. It's forced retailers to pick up their game. You know, uh, it's also forced a lot of customers to go online or use online subscription services or online deliveries more so, or even for the first time ever. I think why that matters is there's actually been quite a bit of research into this, this idea called channel migration, right? And so, 
what it sort of tracks is how customers change their channel preferences over time, right? So how does a customer who was predominantly purchasing something in a physical store move to another channel, right? Because we know that we as humans and shoppers are the same, are quite habitual. We get used to doing something in the same way and we like doing it that way again. It's the easiest, you know, we're the best at it. So it's really an interesting sort of phenomenon that we do observe that over time, customers change the channels that they use. Uh, And what we've discovered is that they do that through sort of stages, right? We call it trial, post-trial. So the challenge often for retailers, if we want people to move um, channels, is to actually just get them to try, right? It's like, look, we've got this different service. We think it will be a better experience or we think, you know, you'll spend more if you do it. So trial it out. That's really the challenge. Once people trial it, if they have a good experience, then they can continue doing it, right? And so to bring a long answer back to the question, what COVID has done is it's forced consumers to trial new ways of shopping that they might not have before, or they might have been averse to, or they might have taken some time to, right? Personal experience of this is we started ordering online toilet paper from Who Gives a Crap, right? Because it was so painful to have to go and try and find it when there was empty shelves or look like that person who's panic buying and get judged by everybody as you're walking out of the store. And you're like, no, I just have a family, you know, like we just need it. Um, So we started buying it online and we'll never go back, right? And I never would have thought I would buy subscription toilet paper online, right? Like, why would you do that? But we did it. It was a great experience. Um, We're just going to do it forever. So that's the idea of, I think that's what COVID has done is it's forced consumers to trial new ways of shopping. It's also forced some retailers to try new ways of offering their service to customers. You combine those two things together and we're definitely not going to go back to the same retail industry that we had before. Don't you think, though, that during that period, consumers became more forgiving about things like logistics delays, um, delays in stock, absence of stock, all of those kinds of things? And and I guess their tolerance for that friction point um, increased. Don't you think, though, it will decrease over time so that, you know, if it's just easier to go back to the store to purchase the toilet paper because it's there now, you know, will they continue um, with their change of habit. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point to consider. And I think particularly down here in Melbourne, I've got to tell you, like mm-hmm. I and everybody else I know are so sick of online deliveries because it's been really our only way to access anything other than groceries, right? And so just I just now assume that every purchase is going to take a couple of months to get here, right? And so that's not a great position for me to you know, start from when I'm considering an online purchase. It doesn't matter who the retailer is or who the delivery is. I'm just assuming it's going to take so long. So, you know, and we saw that when stores reopened, like people lining up with all of their returns or, you know, just wanting to go to Kmart, buy some toys for the kids because we haven't been able to. So I think definitely what we'll see in the short term is a massive swing back towards physical retail, the experience of it. We've missed it. It's just nice to be out of the house, like particularly, you know, in Melbourne, but probably um, everywhere. But I think what you'll see when that settles down is definitely a, a shifted, you know, if we thought of the online retail line where it was and where it was growing, we're going to see a bit of a roller coaster up and down for a little while, right? As we come out of lockdowns, I think we'll see it's 
steady, but it'll be significantly higher than it was. It won't be 16%, but maybe, you know, it's in the low 10s where before it was around the 9s. Um, I do think it, it is going to continue speeding up. The question I have is, you know, it's just how far can it really go? You know, like at what point do we say this is enough online retail? Um, this is where it's going to settle. Uh, I don't have a clear answer on that, but it's going to be really interesting to track. Oh, look, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that um, we're obviously watching it with great interest because, you know, for many of our members, it is certainly a new revenue stream. They have pivoted very quickly. And that question about how large can it go? And it's funny because when Amazon came out, this is something that we debated. We looked at kind of what Australia's demographic is in comparison to you know, other parts of the world where Amazon did really, really well. And it was kind of decided that, you know, our experience should be something similar to that of Canada and France. However, Australians are very, very unique shoppers. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen this in some of your research around personalization and how much that matters. We're definitely early adopters of technology. But there is also a conservative nature of the Australian shopper that is particularly suspicious. How does personalization and privacy play out? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. This is something that um, I've been spending a bit of time on recently in terms of researching. And it plays out really in, in quite a paradoxical way, actually, right? So we call it the personalization privacy paradox. And um, without wanting to, to get too technical and, and make this into a lecture, but the, the idea, right, is that in general, we prefer things that are personalized, right? I would rather have something that's more meaningful to me, more in line with my interests than just uh, a mass-produced something. And that goes for products, that goes for communications, ads, you know, just in general. We prefer things that are more relevant, personalized to us, right? At the same time, we prefer to protect our privacy wherever we can. And as you said, like as, as Australians, we, we tend to be, you know, we, we like our neighbours, we like our friends, but, uh, you know, we're sort of relatively private people, right? And so that's in a way a real paradox because to particularly from a retailer, from a brand, to get personalization, right, I have to give up some level of privacy, right? So the retailer has to know something about me, my interests, my past purchases, you know, my demographic factors at the very basic level to actually give me some kind of personalization, right? So there's, a, there's an inherent trade-off there between how willing am I to give up my privacy to receive that personalization, right? And it depends on a lot of different factors. It depends on, you know, just who I am as a person. People weigh those things up differently. It depends on the retailer, right? So I might be more willing to give up my information to a retailer I'm really invested in or is a brand that I love or that I spend a lot of time with. It depends on how the, that brand or retailer uses uh, my data and if they communicate that to me, right? So, for, as a good example of this, we tend to be pretty happy with giving our um, data to things like Spotify and Netflix because their recommendation systems are really good. Right? Versus a lot of retailers, I would argue, you give them all this data and I don't really can't really see what they've done with it. They don't seem to give me anything better than just, hey, you're a you're a man in the 30s. Here's some chinos, you know. So it, it's such a fascinating space of how that sort of paradox plays out and how those trade-offs play out. The, the key message for retailers, right, is that we can't just assume everybody loves more personalization, right? And in fact, sometimes by 
really getting into super personal stuff and giving recommendations that are based on, you know, detailed information of customers, we're actually turning them away. You know, they find that really creepy uh, and can be turned off by that if, you know, they weren't up for that in the first place. So um, long answer to a very sort of detailed, fascinating, I think, topic. Oh, incredibly fascinating. And I know even, you know, from my own experiences as a, as a consumer, there are certain people that, or certain brands that I'm, you know, quite happy for them to know everything about me. Um, and then there are others that I, you know, I am naturally more suspicious of mm-hmm. um, as well. So, I mean, I, I think it, it is a really, really fascinating topic. What trends do you foresee um, happening in the future um, for our retailers? I mean, obviously, you know, there's no job keeper in the market. We're about to go into Christmas. We know that, you know, we can't most of the time domestically travel into some states. Um, international borders are set to open we know that Australians have been kind of squirreling away money. They're not spending it on travel. I mean, what do you think early next year is going to look like for our retailers? Because, I mean, for us, you know, Christmas is a tough time. Like, if you don't do well at Christmas, you know, we know we see lots of national closures. Do you think that that's, that's what we can anticipate this Christmas? Yeah, I think the challenge that we've had with with Christmas, and I think this is something that I've seen from you know, a lot of your advocacy work and and the messages you've been putting out is that like every week and every day really matters, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if we think about my, my context here in Melbourne, like we're in November already, and like stores have just opened, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I went uh, and walked around uh, Chadston because that's where I live, and like I was surprised actually at how many retailers like didn't clearly have sort of their they weren't sort of Christmas. Like the Christmas stuff wasn't there, right? And there's a few reasons for that, obviously, right? There's been massive supply chain issues, right? And they haven't been open for, you know, a few days. Like I, I was saying to them, I was just like, oh, why doesn't, uh, you know, so-and-so have the Christmas stockings out yet? I'm like, they've been open for like two days. They're probably just figuring out how to turn the lights back on. You know, like it's been such a massive challenge. And I think why that actually really matters even more so now is we've seen over the last few years, if we look at the retail trade data, the Christmas period actually moving earlier and earlier in the year, right? So, where, you know, Australians are getting caught up and then retailers as well in some of the, you know, the big American online sales, your, your Black Fridays. We've had Click Frenzy for a while. I think that's sort of really pushing forward. But they're all like in that October, November sort mm-hmm. of space, right? And so, for a retailer, particularly in the physical space, like if you're not already pushing things you might miss that opportunity where consumers have bought their presents or whatever it might be online at those big sales in advance. Um, that's a big concern I have uh, for Christmas. It's a very it's a very real concern because we know that, I mean, even if you look at Click Frenzy's figures, I think at one point they had something like 170% increase on that particular day and it is going from strength to strength and we're seeing Singles Day arrive now and mm-hmm. definitely Black Friday is, is huge. I mean, even for us, one of our board members has said, you know, that board meeting falls on Black Friday, I will be going into store to help my staff because that's how busy we are. Um, you know, it is now an expectation that those big sales will arrive before Christmas um, and it really is changing the nature of, of that Christmas sales period. And, of course, lockdowns are, you know, absolutely played mayhem, you know, when it comes to that earlier and earlier push towards Christmas. And as you say, you know, for many retailers, they're, they're still trying to get stock out that they've had stuck in storage 
for months at a time because of how long they've been in lockdown, unfortunately, for 2021. So I think it will be really, really telling um, as to where we're headed um, once we get through this kind of festive season. It's been wonderful talking to you today, Jason, and, you know, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but, you know, my time is up with you. Um, and of course, we'll move into part two. So if anyone has you know, obviously enjoyed listening to us chat today, um, there is certainly more to come on Shopology. So I would direct you all to um, head that way and, and certainly listen to Jason's podcast. But thank you so much for listening to us. And just a reminder to all our listeners to like and rate and review this podcast. We don't pay for any advertising. And so we rely on your word of mouth. Um, that's it for this fortnight. So we'll see you again soon. Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.